that has nothing to do with uh, with the mummy, <laughs> the topic at hand. But boy, is it eerily awesome. I've got no strings on me. You're in for a treat, folks. Um, quick story. I uh, I had to get some documentation to present to a uh, present to someone, and I uh, it's been a while since I've seen this piece of documentation in my house. This is a copy of my Florida uh, clinical social work license, and I tore my house apart last night looking for said license. The whole time, my wife sang to me. I think it's at work. I think it's at. I think it's in your desk at your job. I remember you saying that that's where you needed it to have it. And uh, I tore through every piece of mail we had lying around. Um, I went through every single place where where we keep documents, and this kicked up so much dust. I aggravated my sinuses and caught a horrible, horrible case of post nasal drip, which caused me to to vomit not once but twice today. So you get the added luxury of hearing the long road to ruin with your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Radledge, as he slowly but surely loses his voice over the next hour. And oh, by the way, guess where my license was? Guess. Come on, guess. You got it. It was at work. Ha <laughs> ha. Anywho, um, so when my voice completely gives out, the, the man taking over tonight is my uh, co-host on the Whiskey Rebellion, one of the original casual heroes, and a pretty cool fruit who really knows where his towel's at. Ladies and gentlemen, Brendan Frazier's uh, uh, number one fan, Mr. Gavin Napier. How do you do, sir? Well, I'll be good for the first third of this podcast. <laughs> then it kind of goes downhill after that, doesn't it? Drastically. I believe the, the terminology used when we discussed this before air on Facebook was almost a Wally Coyote situation where you start off very high and then go straight down. When uh, when I talk to people about the Star Wars prequels, the subject of um, CGI comes up, and a lot of my friends are CGI snobs. You know, if they if they can see the CGI, you know, if the CGI is too obvious, if you know, if the people uh, working on the film did not do a good enough job integrating the CGI in with the real life stuff, they they turn their nose up at it. And I've never really been one of those people. Um, I get it, but but I but I have a phrase here on the long road to ruin. It's not more dinosaurs, not not yet, not this time. Um, it is Congo bad. If you've ever seen the movie Congo. The CGI in this movie is so bad, it looks like it was uh, like a Sega era, Sega Genesis era uh, graphics. Especially towards the end when the monkeys start to, you know, just gorillas rather start to um, melt from the from the molten lava. It just it looks like a bad video game. So I said, look, as long as you're better than Congo, I'm not going to criticize. And then The Rock shows up in the second Mummy movie as the Scorpion King at the at, at the end. And I'm like, oh, dear. <laughs> you walked straight out of a boss battle in a 16-bit video game and just went to down. It looks like one of the actors in that final sequence is actually trying not to laugh. 
Probably. And so that's probably a fair estimation of what's happening. <laughs> but we will we will get to the mummy returns uh in a little bit. Um as I said, uh I, I am fighting a losing battle with my voice, so this is gonna be an abbreviated show. Uh but we are gonna spend some time talking about each movie and, and uh we'll be out of here in a little little over an hour. So, um this is the Halloween season. And Halloween means ghosts and goblins and Frankensteins and mummies and Draculas and such. I pluralized all of those things. Um, so why not talk about The Mummy, uh, which is a action-adventure series featuring a horror monster. Um, and that horror monster is Brendan Fraser. I kid, I kid, Gavin. Don't get all upset at me. Now, you might be wondering, why do I keep saying he's number one fan and all that? Because you had to have listened to one of the movie casts where Gavin went... Uh, on and on and on about how wonderful Brendan Fraser is. So, Gavin, how wonderful is Brendan Fraser? He is second only to Ryan Reynolds. Indeed. I, I Personally, I'm a big fan of, of Brendan Fraser. I think he's made some very poor career choices. I think there have been some questionable casting decisions, but I think there's a lot of bright spots scattered throughout his career as well. Um I think from School Ties and Gods and Monsters, uh, Crash, which Jed hated, but I thought was perfectly acceptable. I don't think it was necessarily best picture, but I thought it was a, a fine movie. Uh, I enjoyed him in Georgia the Jungle for what that movie was, and I know Jed also hates that phrase for what it was, but let's be honest, movies geared toward children and families aren't really trying to evoke groundbreaking pathos and character acting and, and things of that nature. So as a family film and, and a family-safe comedy, I thought George of the Jungle was perfectly good, and I think the box office bore that out. Uh, we've also seen some, some bad decisions from Brendan Fraser, uh, such as Dudley Do-Right. Um, not a big fan of Blast from the Past back and I think a lot of his bad movies aren't necessarily bad performances on his part but bad decisions on his part and that brings us to the character of Rick O'Connell the centerpiece of the mummy movies and I don't think Rick O'Connell was ever going to be Indiana Jones and I don't I think the original version of the mummy was very much a spiritual successor to the Indiana Jones movies and, and a franchise that we thought was dormant and uh, as far as I'm concerned, remain dormant after The Last Crusade. But what we got with The Mummy was, uh, like I said, very much a spiritual successor to the Indiana Jones franchise. It, that could have just as easily, had the movie been made 15 years prior or 10 years prior or whatever, been referred to as Indiana Jones and the Curse of Emotep or Indiana Jones and whatever fancy name you want to put on there, you could have plugged Harrison Ford into the Rick O'Connell role, called him Indiana Jones, and it would have been a perfectly acceptable installation of the franchise. Now, again, Brendan Fraser is not Harrison Ford, never has been, never will be. He's several notches below that in terms of charisma, uh, leading man abilities, star power, but he certainly fit the bill for what they needed in this type of movie. He could pull off the quick witty line. He could pull off the not-so-flashy action scene where he shoots some guns and punches some people. He looks good when he's dusty and dirty and rummaging through tombs and caves and going after treasures and, 
He can play a semi-convincing, aloof womanizer. That's all you need for this type of role. If Michael Douglas could pull it off in Romancing the Stone, then Brendan Fraser can pull it off in The Mummy. While Ringo Connell... Yeah, yeah. Don't please don't take that as a knock on Romancing the Stone or or anything of that nature. I, I enjoy that movie tremendously, but Michael Douglas is not the first guy you think of to play that role. Um, when I when I watch this movie, I, I see Rick O'Connell as a guy that falls somewhere between Alan Quatermain and Indiana Jones, and realistically that's the best you can hope for when you're when you're starting an action adventure franchise. I think we'll get a lot of the same thing from Nathan Drake if the Uncharted series ever gets off the ground depending on who they cast. But after we get through the initial installment of this franchise and and we can start talking about uh, the original installment here, but after we get past that, I feel like they really cut the legs out from under the character, and, and Brendan Fraser didn't have a fighting chance. Um, one thing I did learn in in researching for this, Mark, and I'll shut up and let you jump in with your quickly declining voice, um, <laughs> this, this movie and, and this franchise, I, I did not realize this, obviously the name is the same, and the I guess the core of the story is the same. But this movie really was intended to be a reboot of the original Mummy with Boris Karloff. Interesting. Um, the movie, of course, came out in, in 1999. I'm going to say this one last time, and then I'm not addressing it again. I apologize for my voice going in and out. Um, I'm doing the best here that I can. In any case... The movie came out in 1999. It's set in 1923. And uh, Brendan Fraser's Rick O'Connell is an American explorer. Uh, he's discovered uh, Hamanaptra, the city of the dead. Three years later, O'Connell returns to the site with uh, Evelyn Evie Carnahan and her brother Jonathan. When Evie accidentally revives the mummified corpse of the Egyptian priest Imhotep, the pair must find a way to kill him before he rises back in power and destroys the world. That's that's the plot of this thing. And um, a lot of what you said there, I think, is a nice summation of the first uh, 1999 movie. You know, it was a great action adventure with, you know, with, with a uh, little sliver of horror in there in that, um, you, know, you know, they show you the mummies and the mummies don't, you know, the mummies look kind of gross, but it, it isn't necessarily scary. Uh, it's just, it is what it is. Um, one of the things that I think makes the, original mummy movie work is that and, and this is a problem I think with a lot of big Hollywood movies is that a lot of time and care goes into the first one unless you're Michael Bay um, it, there's a lot of time and care put into giving characters some depth even in you know in an action adventure where you're being chased by a by a monster uh, there's there there's uh, arcs happening with each of the characters. Uh, in the case of Brendan Fraser, uh, his Rick O'Connell, you know, he doesn't believe. He he doesn't believe, um, you know, any any of the uh, any of the legends, and you know, and uh, he's kind of going along with this because at the time that they find him, he's in prison, in somewhere in Egypt. So, um, you know, he, it's kind of like his, his opportunity to kind of get out get out of the fix that he's in 
But ultimately, he he thinks that these people are, are nuts and they're not going to find what they're looking for. Uh, meanwhile, you have um, Rachel Weisz's character, Evelyn Carnahan, who's trying to prove herself. She's a librarian. She's not an explorer. She's uh, not any kind of uh, field expert as such. She, you know, she's not respected in the field. She's trying to gain that respect, and this is an opportunity for her to uh, promote herself by leaps and bounds. And so you have that in that first movie, and I, and, I, and I'll give uh, Gavin an opportunity to jump in with that in just a moment. But one of the things we're going to find as the series progresses is that those arcs are gone by the second movie uh, and the third, and they're replaced by things like I'm a dad now, you know, or the shift in character focus uh, moves away from Brendan Fraser and moves to this kid. And we all know, you know, kid actors tend to ruin movies. Um, And then, but the third one, it's the same pattern where, you know, the fathers and sons seem to, I don't know what's going on in Hollywood, but there was this belief apparently among writers and producers that fathers and sons never get along. Always um, uber competitive with one another, and uh, they they go through most of their life uh, separated from one another and are only brought together by by happenstance and, you know, some sort of weird uh, weird issue that they have to resolve. You know, thinking of the last Die Hard movie, um, the last Indiana Jones with with What's-His-Face and Transformers, just like over and over and over again, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more in depth. But I mean, they they really took the focus off of uh, what we learned about these characters in the first movie, and and just sort of throwing a lot of Hollywood tropes out there that are not interesting in any way, shape, or form. Go ahead, Gavin. What what are some of your thoughts on that? Well, I I think the supporting cast in the original installment of the franchise was a lot stronger than anything we got moving forward. Um, Rachel Weiss as Evie in what was really a breakout role for her, not so much uh, in terms of the quality of her acting, but in terms of the attention she got for it, because uh, unless there's something that has completely escaped my memory, this was really her first big blockbuster appearance. And so it was really a breakthrough moment for Rachel Weisz in her career. Um, I, I don't know the names of the actors off the top of my head, but <clears throat> her brother Jonathan, uh, I thought he played his part very yeah, well. Yeah, seems to have gone as, dark for a moment. Uh, have you lost me? Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Testing one, two. Testing one, two. Hello, Rattelichen Broadcasting Network. You were saying, sir. No, I think I think Jonathan did an excellent job playing his part um, as someone concerned only of, with financial gain and what he can get from this, but is forced into action despite his overwhelming cowardice. Um, I, I thought Benny, the goon that double crosses Rick, um, I think that weaselly little character was played very well. And, and there's no kids, there's no family arc that bogs this down for Rick O'Connell because 
I, I don't know that anybody really wants to see their action adventure heroes turn into family men. That, that takes away the allure and the appeal of the fantasy for both genders. Because when when men watch a movie like The Mummy, like Indiana Jones, like Die Hard, the idea is, hey, here's this man's man that's not bogged down with all the day-to-day nonsense that keeps us from having our own great adventure. And women, when they see this, they see someone to swoon over, a, a rough-around-the-edges, rugged character that puts himself in all sorts of dangerous situations because he is unencumbered by the burden of a family. And you knew for that character, as they did over Part 2 and Part 3 of this franchise, and it greatly decreases the appeal on both sides of the aisle in terms of gender. Um I think Rick O'Connell, as as a solo, daring, swashbuckling, World War II era archaeologist type, I think he works fun. Rick O'Connell, family man, dragging around his librarian wife and eight-year-old kid, sucks. Yes, yes, it does. It, um, it, we're going we're to get there momentarily. But, I, I mean, one of the great things about the original Mummy movie um, in, in this series is you have you know competing teams of of people you know going after the treasure uh the whole the whole mysticism of it the magic of the movie is uh brought about completely by accident which is a stark difference between this movie and the next two is that yes. you know while you it is while you're you're following these characters ultimately they are looking for treasure whether it's Sort of the altruistic treasure of we want to find the you know these artifacts uh, to preserve history or you know I want gold because I because I I want to be rich whatever the whatever the motivations are that that's what's going on here and you know Evie even says it Rachel Weisz says it in the movie she's like it's just a book it's just a book and it's okay and so she's reading from the book because why why shouldn't she wants to know, she wants to know what's inside of this thing she's curious. And it's only then that the movie goes from a treasure hunt movie into, you know, this sort of crazy, um, you know, mystic, magical thing where people can rise from the dead and, you know, perform ceremonies in order to stay alive and all that nonsense. Um, You know, so the movie sort of crosses over at that point, but it is completely by accident. So, you know, so that was one of the aspects of the first Mummy movie that I really liked is that you don't go into it with, uh, with, with this wholesale belief that uh, people are chasing magical monsters and such. I, I like the fact that it's at least, a, at first, grounded in reality. This is a case of... I have a question. Story. I have a question for you, Mark. Yes, sir. What do you think it is that the Sumerian culture did that makes them the default bad guy for every mystical monster movie ever made. <laughs> um, we don't like black people in this country. Fair enough. Because, I mean, Evil Dead, so, <clears throat> ancient Sumerian text, The Mummy, ancient Sumerian curses, Ghostbusters, ancient Sumerian demigods. I mean, the Sumerians are getting a bad rap. Um, I blame racism. That's good enough for me. Anywho, uh, what I was saying is this, this is certainly a case of more dinosaurs because when you look at you know all of the things that make uh, the mummy great, um, what you have is people taking away from from it. Oh, 
what people want to see is more magic, you know, more monsters, that sort of thing. And so that's what you get with the next two movies. And it's like, no, that's not why this worked. <laughs> Running from the crazy monster is, was, was, was fun, but it is not the thing that really hooked people. Um, it by itself. Okay. Um, Robert Winfrey likes to play the home game whenever we do this show. He's a longtime fan, and obviously he's a big part of the Rattlesham Broadcasting family. He's uh, he's another cool fruit who really knows where his towel's at. Um, he's he's Facebook bombing me with all of these messages. This one I'll actually read. Sumeria was the first major human civilization. No, I still say it's racism. So there. <laughs> Thank you, Robert, for your contribution. Anywho, and you can listen to Robert and his contributions Sunday night at 8 o'clock on the 401 Ground and Pound uh, wrestling show, a radio show, and Friday nights uh, for Everyone Loves the Bad Guy. There we go. Got those plugs out of the way. Um, I want to move uh, – I, I do want to get into the second movie uh, because we are pressed for time tonight and, and say The Mummy by, by itself uh, is great. And if it doesn't have two sequels, it really can stand alone – as a, as an excellent, uh, nearly flawless in terms of you know an action adventure film, um, uh, nearly flawless action adventure film uh, for you know really any audience. Uh, Brendan Fraser has a bit of an edge to him. The characters are fun and interesting. The plot isn't so hokey. You want to smash your head into the wall. Um, and it's got an ensemble character. I mean, I, I agree. I, I love the interplay between Brendan Fraser and uh, Benny. <laughs> that was hilarious. I think Roger Ebert's review of The Mummy pretty well hit the nail on the head. Um, his quick review is, there's hardly a thing that I can say in its favor except that I was cheered by nearly every minute of it. I cannot argue for the script, the direction, the acting, or even the mummy, but I can say that I was not bored, and sometimes I was even unreasonably pleased. It's just a fun movie. And it's one of those where, you know, as Robert Winfrey often likes to say, the the, the pig hostage, oh, oh, God, what's his phrase? Robert, just, just send it to me. (laughs) <laughs> the um, not the corporate pig hostage. Oh Jesus! This is what happens when I'm tired. I literally woke up three minutes before the show started from a nap. Um, profitability pig hostage. Got it. Got it. Got it before he sent it to me. Actually, <laughs> the profitability pig hostage demand sequels. I mean, for God's sakes, they got a roller coaster out of this movie. <laughs> so um, it, it demanded sequels. It, it demanded a franchise uh, because of how well it did. So we got The Mummy Returns, and that was back in 2001, so two years later. Now, the only thing I can say about The Mummy Returns is this is what gave The Rock his start in acting. And and I have to say, I only recently watched The Mummy Returns in order to do this podcast. I've never seen any other part of that movie, and, and as a wrestling fan, we all saw the beginning. Hakuna Machente, as he yell, bellows into the into the wind and charges forward into death. We all saw that on Monday Night Raw. We all had a good laugh at it. But it's it's really it's like the only thing about this movie that's memorable is that hey, this is where The Rock got his start um, as a feature actor. Um, the beginning of the movie with The Rock is fine. You know, it is what it is. 
the end of the movie where he's the uh, half scorpion, half man CGI uh, video game boss. Oh boy! <laughs> I think in order he, to he looks like to someone do. should. He looks like someone should take a screenshot from an old computer game, and he looks like the the caption underneath would be "Please kill me." It, it, <laughs> it's an abomination in every sense of the word. It it, it looks almost like the old uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer claymation type Christmas specials. It's it's a regression. When you look at The Rock and the Scorpion King in that final arc of the movie, or final chunk of the movie, and you think Terminator 2 actually came out a full decade before that, it pains your soul. It's You mentioned Congo bad, and for people that aren't familiar with the effects in Congo and what went wrong there, that was, um, it was, that was Cameron, right? That was one of... Cameron's few abject failures. Um, you keep talking, I will look it up. I, I'm pretty sure it was James Cameron because I think it's one of the few movies he's made which has been a, a complete failure in every sense. And it was it was derived as competition for Jurassic Park. It was uh, supposed to be competition with dinosaurs in Jurassic direct- Park. It's actually directed by Frank Marshall. Okay, Frank Marshall. I'm sorry. I knew it was one of the the big time Hollywood directors. My apologies, Mr. Cameron. Um, but the reason that it didn't work is because CGI at that point had not progressed to the point that they could realistically convey hair. There's one thing that gorillas have that dinosaurs typically do not, and they have it in abundance. That would be hair. And so. Everything falls apart because you're making a movie about gorillas and you can't make hair. And so your (laughs) other option is to put someone literally inside of a monkey suit for the majority of the movie and rely on terrible CGI when absolutely positively necessary. CGI that we have already established is not going to work for what you want it to do, but you're going to plow through with it anyway. That's pretty much think, where we are with the Scorpion King, only a half a decade removed. Well, here, here's the thing. That whole ending sequence is, I think, punctuated by the fact that The Rock looks terrible, or whatever that's supposed to be. Um, <laughs> the, the, the CGI'd Rock Scorpion thing. Uh, Scorpion King, I guess, is what we're calling it. Uh, the, the problem is that's not the only thing that's wrong with that scene. So the the problem is that that whole scene is is just a mess. You've got um it, it it's unclear what the one villain is trying to do. Why does he have to fight the Scorpion King and then Brendan Fraser's like trying to stop him but then he's fighting the Scorpion King in the middle of all of this. The kid's trying to bring his mother back to life and then they're att- attacked attacked by the woman. And then she runs away, and it's just, it just goes on and on and on. <laughs> and um, it's something that the red letter media guys call like the mul- uh, the multipl- multiplicity effect, where you know like each movie in the prequels <laughs> or e- each movie in the in the Star Wars franchise got excessively more um, more um, 
more battle sequences going on towards the end. You know, by the time you get to Return of the Jedi, you've got the battle on Endor, you've got Luke Skywalker fighting Darth Vader, and then you've got the uh, the, the Death Star. You know, just you just you're going around and around and around, and that that's the problem here. So like, instead of focusing on one thing and giving the audience an opportunity to really get invested in what this character is doing, you're all over the place. Um, but but I'll tell you, I'll tell you what problem. my problem with the movie is. Okay. I've never wanted a hero's family to die so much. <laughs> all right, I uh, let me let me set this up, okay? Let me get there because that's what I want to talk about. And so the thing of it is, is that you're you're split between the thing going on with the son and the, the stuff going on with Brendan Fraser, and that's that's ultimately where where the line of demarcation is. And the problem is that instead of focusing on Brendan Fraser, who is your star, who is your anchor, is that the whole thing this movie should be revolving around. They gave half the movie to the kid, the kid who you don't know, the kid who isn't so much a character as he is an archetype. You know, he's, there's nothing going on with this child, and the movie is the so much of the movie is is anchored to him that you you you, you pretty much lose interest. And then, of course, you've got this really convoluted plot line, and the movie just drags on and on and on and on. And so, by the time, and so in, by the time you get to the end, you're absolutely right. You're just like, I don't even care anymore. Just, I, they could all fucking die in in the uh, in the oasis. Like the, oh, the only character that I that I like in the second movie is uh, the character from the first movie, who's the the Arab, who's uh, like you know yes. defending the area. He's the only decent yeah. one. <laughs> Everybody else becomes like a parody of themselves. And the edge that Brendan Fraser has as a character is absolutely gone. And he has lines that he has to say, like, it's not easy being a father. Like, so that's what these movies have to do. That was quick. We went from a fun action-adventure movie, you know, set in, in the desert where, where we're being chased by mummies to this to is a about a family. <laughs> this is about a family connecting in some way. <laughs> yeah, I... Yeah, family bonding over a centuries-old curse, uh, it doesn't work for me. And, again, I've never wanted a hero's family to die in a horrible way in front of them as much as I did in this movie. Because I genuinely enjoyed the first Mummy. It's one of my go-to movies when I need to throw something on in the background that I can pay attention to. I hear things that I recognize. I know when to turn around and watch for big, important scenes. But I don't have to stay locked in because I've seen it enough that I know what's happening. Um, Mummy Returns is something that I'll never watch again. Uh, I I actually think that Mummy Returns is worse than the third and final installment that it took him nearly a decade to get to. And for me, everything that's going on in this movie, the character of Rachel Weisz and uh, his kid, I, I don't know the name of the kid that plays him, I don't know the name of his son which is awful because i just watched the third one literally right before we started this podcast and i still don't remember the kid's name um they are the complete (laughs) polar opposites of short round and the blonde curly haired lady they in, in temple of doom they uh they managed to add to indiana jones they managed to bring out aspects of his character that we had not seen to that point and, and while a lot of people 
certainly don't think Temple of Doom is the best of the Indiana Jones movies. It's not universally hated either. And at the very least, we get the iconic, you call him Dr. Jones, lady. Like, we we get some fun moments out of it. There's absolutely nothing fun about the miserable breath that plays Brendan Fraser's kid or what happens to all of the characters in this movie because of it. Nothing. There's nothing fun here. This this may as well be a dystopian universe. It's awful. I hate it. This movie was maybe the biggest disappointment that I've ever seen in a theater because I expected so much coming out of the first mummy, and I just got nothing. They took all of my expectations, they kicked them in the gutter, they pissed on them, and let them wash away. And they didn't care because they had my seven bucks. Look, you you can have a character... They obviously set it up that him and, and uh, Rachel Weisz's character were going to get together at the end of the movie. You can do a movie where they're married and have a relationship. Um, you know, and, and you can even do it where they have a kid. But you have to do the movie. If you're going to do that, then then you have to set it up where the family is in one place at the start of the movie, and then something happens that tests this this family. And you you still have to see these people as individuals. Um, while we'll still keep, you know, and it's a lot of, it's not easy to do because you still have to keep a lot of balls in the air. Something, you know, you still have to make the movie fun. You still have to give, um, you have to give the audience, and, and and this is something that I know Robert Winfrey sitting at home uh, needs us to talk about. You have to give us an interesting villain. They beat Imhotep the first time, right? And, and I don't like when they, I, I, unless there's something about the villain that that you know, like Loki, for example. You know, everyone loved Loki. They wanted more of him. There's nothing about Imhotep that's particularly interesting. You know, he he says a few lines in ancient Sumerian, and that's all he kind of does. So it's not like he we need to see more of him. Of him. It's, it's true. Um, you know what I mean? So, like, if you're going to do a sequel and your first villain was just sort of, you know, stock video game boss, then come up with a new villain. You mean to tell me there's not another mummified Egyptian somewhere, and a mummified Sumerian, and mummified you know, a Jew something that they couldn't have found in the fucking desert that could have chased them around? You know, and right. and whatever right. issue you're gonna give, you're you know, and and let that be the thing you know that tests this family. You know, things are going great, and then suddenly this, they're being chased by this monster, and now you know some of the warts are starting to show in the in the family. Uh, that sort of thing. Give give me something that's at least approaching realistic. Not every kid is in, you know is a goddamn genius. This is the other problem is that Hollywood loves to you know present children as these sort of like pristine geniuses that can do absolutely anything and are completely infallible. And their only issue in the world is they're not strong enough to fight the bad guy. Except that some of them do. <laughs> some of them you know kick the wolf man to the nuts that sort of thing. Um, it just you know. It, you ever it, met a six-year-old? Gonna... Most of them are that? idiots. So have you ever <laughs> met a six-year-old? They're idiots. Oh, yeah. They don't know how to do anything. They they are not. They are certainly not uh, able to read uh, ancient Sumerian and bring their mother back to life. I was um, a smart yeah, kid. Yeah. I don't care to tell you that I was a really smart kid. I was. I never approached Hollywood levels of smart. No, it, it's as if people in Hollywood have never met, never met a child before. It really is. Um, and, it, and it ruins movies. It, it really does. You know, <laughs> Jake, Jake Lloyd's uh, 
that'll forever be known as one as one of the people who who took part in ruining Star Wars. But that's a whole other podcast. In any case, um, what do you think? You know, we we we've slammed this movie, and I I don't like to be completely negative on this show. What do you think they could have done? You know, I'm suggesting that they needed a different villain. They needed to go kind of in a, in a different direction, and they needed to have the situation sort of bring out some of the issues in the family for them to then later resolve. What do you think they could have done to make the mummy return better, aside from not do the rock as that CGI blob at the end? I think uh, I think Rachel Vice could have stayed on as the leading lady, but they could have left the kid out of it. Um, I think maybe less dirigibles. I think I think 100% less blimps would have been fantastic in this movie. Um, <laughs> I, I think maybe relocating to maybe an Incan or a Mayan civilization, um, you know, maybe somewhere else in the Middle East other than Egypt, maybe Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, you know, go go somewhere else in Asia Minor there that that can give you a different story to tell because you've moved on from Imhotep. And leave the kid out, remove the blimps, find a different location, find a different villain. And as far as, you know, the whole family dynamic thing and, and Rachel Weisz sticking around, I understand that after the first moment, Rachel Weisz, her career took off for a couple of years. She was sort of the Hollywood it girl for a year or two. And they wanted to capitalize on that. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with making us think that that Rick and Evie get together at the end of the first mummy and he shows up with another leading lady in the next movie. That formula worked out pretty well for Harrison Ford. Sure. All right. Um, let's move on here. Now, I, I promised Robert Winfrey I would I would talk about this. The original mummy starts in nineteen twenty three. The Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, which actually came out in 2008, seven years after The Mummy Returns, um, is set in 1946. This movie is 23 years later. Brendan Fraser is a fucking vampire. That man does not age. (laughs) Yeah. Can, Can you just spend a moment and talk about how they didn't even try to make him look older. At this point, he's got like a twenty-some-odd-year-old son, you know, who's often who's out there exploring the world and whatnot. And of course, they don't get along as they said at the top of the show. Um, they've got they've they've got a new woman because they couldn't bring uh, they couldn't get Rachel Weisz back, but that that's fine. In any case, you know, he he's supposed to be an an elder statesman in this movie. They couldn't even give him gray hair. They just it looks like he just showed up. <laughs> And he doesn't look a stitch different than he did in 1999. I, I mean, you're, I mean, as, as the president of his fan club, is he is he claiming the souls of others? Is he drinking their blood? What's going on with Brendan Fraser? Well, you've got you've got two things to look at here. The first is that to come back and play Rick O'Connell again in this movie, uh, Brendan Fraser had to get hair plugs because he he was rapidly going bald. So, Brendan Fraser in the 2008 iteration of The Mummy, hair plugs. And that probably made him look younger than he would have otherwise. The, the other thing to look at is, 
I don't know how old Rick O'Connell was supposed to be in the original Mummy movie. But given that it's taking place 23 years later, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the Rick O'Connell that we see in the 2008 film is probably supposed to be somewhere in his mid to late 40s, which means Brendan Fraser is playing a role that's age-appropriate, which doesn't happen very often in Hollywood. You either get 30-year-olds playing teenagers or (laughs) you get people skewing vastly younger for roles, like Robert Downey Jr., who's approaching 50, playing Tony Stark, who's supposed to be in his 30s, and pulling it off because you know it's Robert Downey Jr., he can do that. Um, what we get in 2008 is Brendan Fraser playing a role that is probably pretty close to his actual age. And so, you know, in, in 1999, he's probably 30 years old playing a 22, 23-year-old guy. In 2008, he's 45 years old, playing a 45-year-old guy. And, and that's why he hasn't aged. Okay. They've still given him gray hair? Sure. Could they have done some makeup stuff to make him look a little older, a little wiser, a little more beat up? Sure. But they didn't, because they didn't care. I said, the, <clears throat> I said at the top of the movie, at the top of the show that uh, the driving force of this movie, other than, you know, the stuff having to do with Chet Lee, who, who, who is our mummy in this movie, is that um, the, the father and son are, are uh, there's, there's a word I want here, and I'm so tired I can't think of it, but they are, um, they are not with one another. The, the son is off doing his thing, and, the, and, the, and Brendan Fraser delivers lines like, oh, the only time he shows up is when he wants money, and... Um, <clears throat> the kid is sort of hiding the fact that he's dropped out of school so that he can run around the world and chase mummies. And and that's fine. And that's, and that's where we are at the beginning of this movie. And here's Robert with my vocabulary lesson. And what does he got for me? Estranged. Yes. Thank you, Robert. Um, what a good guy. Yes. They are estranged at the beginning of the movie. Uh, and, that's sort of the arc of their relationship is that by the end of this, they will not be estranged. They will value one another. You know, there's lines in this movie where uh, the, the woman playing Rachel Weiss's character, <laughs> you know, says, you know, you're his father. You're supposed to be supportive. And he's like, that's right. I'm his father. It's implied. Um, were you at all, I mean, first of all, we've seen this a billion times in the movies. Uh, the most recent one that, that again that comes to my head is uh, the, the latest Die Hard, where you you know you've got the son who's embedded in you know some sort of law enforcement, and uh, Bruce Willis you know finds him in Russia and he thinks that he's in trouble and so the two of them um, end up you know fighting out of Russia together, but uh, they, they are estranged at the top of the movie and sort of re rebond as the movie progresses. And I just feel like Hollywood has such a clumsy way of handling it. Like they don't, you know, I've, I often, as you know, comment on the WrestleCast that Vince McMahon has like an almost an autism about him. <clears throat> you know, George Lucas, the same thing. They don't seem to understand how people work. Well, I don't think I'm being fair because that's a lot of writers in Hollywood who don't seem to understand how human beings work. And they, and so they they want to tell you the story about uh, the you know re rebonding of a father and son, and I just feel like it's handled so poorly 
you know, it's sort of forced on you and, and it's uh, clumsy and it's ham-handed and it's just not really an enjoyable arc to view as, as an audience member. Yeah, I, the only thing that I can think of is, is there's a, a large number of Hollywood writers, actors, and directors projecting their relationships in, into these roles. Um Certainly looking back at my relationship with my father over the course of my life, there were times when we were estranged. There were times when we didn't get along. There were times when if we were in the same room, it was going to turn into an argument. Um, I think a lot of people go through that on some level with their fathers. Um, Certainly not to the point that I ran away from home and dropped out of college and then tried to do the exact same thing that my dad did, only without telling him, because somehow that would prove that he should respect that Look, it doesn't make any sense, and you can't try to make sense of it. it nothing nothing about that relationship on screen works. I, all it is is a vehicle to get Rick and Evie, um, well, Rick and Evie 2.0, back into the game. Um all right. Here's the other I, problem with this. I, really, really quick. Hang on, really quick. Here's the other problem with this. They always pick a shitty actor with no appeal, no no charisma to be the son. And I would include Shia LaBeouf in that, in that uh, comment. It, he, you know, they they want to tell you a story, and they want to say we have two heroes here. We have the father, and we have the son, and you're supposed to cheer for them both, but. You know, but they only go halfway with it. They're they're half pregnant with the idea, because they they never fully embrace the idea that the second guy, the son, should be equal to the star. You know, in this case, Brendan Fraser. So they pick an actor who has no charisma, who can barely act his way out of a paper bag, and is not somebody you would particularly want to see succeed or get the girl. This is another example where I'm like, I hate the sun, and I can, you know, and, I, and I'm cheering Brendan Fraser when he says, you know, like, you know, I don't want to deal with this kid anymore. Like, we, yeah, I you agree know, with you. You know sir. who should have, you know who should have played his son? Fifty-year-old Sean Astin. <laughs> sure. Based, Why not? Based based on the looks that they based on the the appearance of the actor that they cast as his son, they should have just went with Sean Astin. They're like, look, Samwise, just go go be Rick O'Connell's kid. It's fun. <laughs> we, under, we understand you're the same age as Brendan Fraser. You still look like you're 14. Just go play his kid. It's fun. Um, so, yeah, they could have gone with Sean Astin and everything would have been fun. Mr. Winfrey says that there's no way that that I can actually like number three over number two. And, and I promised him on Facebook that I would explain why. And it, it's this theory that I have that applies to many different parts of life, and it's called the value of lowered expectations. Because going into Mummy 2, I expected something similar to the original Mummy, and I got absolutely nothing like it. And so I hate that movie for letting me down so much. Going into the third installment of the franchise, I expected nothing. And not only did they meet that expectation, they actually managed to just barely exceed it. And so I find it a little bit more tolerable. Um, Also, Jet Li and some wire work. 
uh, you throw in Jet Li and some wire work, you you get me to watch at least the scenes that he's doing the wire work and the kung fu stuff in. So whatever. That's that's why I can I, tolerate three over two. I have to say, I I had an interest, I had a curiosity about Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, which is a part of the reason why I wanted to do uh, this do the mummy franchise for this podcast. You know, it was like, gave me a reason to watch the movie. Um, I give them credit. I I, want to say, I know, you know, three is not worse than two, you know, or whatever. Look, I give three at least credit for trying to do something different. They changed locations. We got a new villain. Um, The problem is it was the same plot. You know, we have to revive the mummy so that he can take over the world and then there's this, you know, convoluted thing that they have to do in order to do it. And so it's just, you know, it's, it's just a series of, you know, uh, a series of uh, happy accidents that gets, gets the characters where they need to go. And somewhere in the middle of this, we had two armies of the dead fighting each other. Yeah, but okay. in fairness, in fairness, that's that's sort of the the bare bones description of all of the Indiana Jones movies, too. You know, here's here's this adventurer. He's looking for something. Somebody else finds it. If the wrong people find it and use it, the whole world's doomed. He has to stop it. He stops it through some convoluted thing. Other than Raiders of the Lost Ark, which it has been pointed out, that movie doesn't really change if Indiana Jones isn't involved at all. The Nazis find it. They <laughs> open up their heads. Still melt. He's completely unnecessary. Um, but thank you, Big Bang that's Theory. That's pretty much. Yeah, that's that's pretty much the whole the premise of these movies. And I, so I can ignore, I can forgive that. I, I thought Jet Li as Chinese Captain Planet was a, a, a decent choice for a villain. It, it went okay. There were some cool special effects that we got out of it. We did get some yetis. Hard to argue with yetis as as uh, heroes. The, the secret yeti army that live in the mountains of Shangri-La. I, I was all right with that. Um... The, the characters they added this time didn't take away from anyone else. And we got a little wink and a nod at the fact that they changed actresses from Rachel Weisz to Maria Bello. Um, I like Maria That's a great line. I was a completely just, different. I was a completely different woman back then. You most certainly yeah. were, madam. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I like Maria Bello. I think she's a good actress. I wish she hadn't been trying so hard to do a Rachel Weisz impression in the role, but... You you work with what you're given. Um, and I, I think the problem there is that she move. had no on stream she had no on stream chemistry with Brandon Fraser. She might as well have been his mother. None. You know, none whatsoever. I, Especially I, because he doesn't age. <laughs> I mean, it's they're trying to tell you the story of a couple living in retirement and in realizing that you know the, the their best their best years were were behind them, and so this movie is about sort of recapturing that spirit and all of that. And which would have been okay. It would have been a you know a decent uh, subplot of the movie, except for the fact that I'm not buying that these two are in love. At the very least, in two, I bought that the two of them were in love. Could could have done without the kid, but I at least believed that uh, Evie and and Rick were in love with each other. And in this one, I mean, yeah, it. <laughs> I don't. They just they had nothing. They were you know, for, for them for me to tell for them to tell this story about how you know they we need to rekindle our love and I'm like I don't believe you're in love at all. So that that, that sort of took away from everything. 
Um, just in, in the interest of time, I think the biggest problem with the Tomb of the Dragon Emperor is that we've already seen this movie, and it was better the first time around, and it had you know it had better characters. Um, it was too many similarities to the first one, um, and they, they needed you know. And I understand you're doing a mummy movie. There's you, you know you, there are certain things you kind of have to be there, but I think that's that's the difference between an okay movie and a great movie is that if you can take the same uh, elements and do something truly outrageous with them, truly interesting, then you've got an opportunity for a great movie. The problem is they just repainted the same house and told you it was a new house. I'm like, well, it's not a new house. It's the same house. You just repainted a Chinese. Um, Your last word here on the the Dragon Emperor and the trilogy at large, and then we're going to do plugs and get out of here. Um, I, I think Dragon Emperor, again, largely because of my lowered expectations, I think it's a more tolerable sequel. It, it allows me to sort of pretend that the second one doesn't exist. Um, are you familiar with the the Uncharted series of video games at all, Mark? No, sir. I play Lego games. Uh, the, uh, the lead character's name is Nathan Drake, and he's a descendant of Sir Francis Drake. And the guy's sort of a a self-styled adventurer. Um, He's not a ladies' man. He's he's very quippy and very smart-alecky, but he knows his stuff archaeologically. And his whole goal in in life is to retrace the steps of Sir Francis Drake and, and find out what happened on his voyages and find out what went wrong and, and why certain things are missing historically. And in doing so, he, he ends up on this globe-trotting adventure, and he ends up sort of trailing behind people that are looking for the same information he is, only instead of <clears throat> genealogical research, they're in this trying to find mystical items for for their power or for money and, and the profitability that they have. And so you have this adventurer with very noble intentions and his ragtag crew of friends that help him out along the way. We get a love interest, and we bounce around the globe from South America to Russia to Poland to uh, the United States to Thailand to the Philippines, and we, we bounce all over the place with it. And I really feel like what they've done with the Uncharted series is what they could have done with the Mummy movies. Uh, because while it's still the same basic premise, they they throw in enough variance to keep it entertaining. Um, I think it would be worth your while, Mark, to get on YouTube and at least watch people play through it and, and get the cut scenes. Some of the finest voice acting I've heard in video games, movies, animation, uh, anything. Nolan North as Nathan Drake is absolutely fantastic. Um, but I really think that the Uncharted series of video games is what the Mummy movies could have been. And I hope that as the rumors continue to fly about the Uncharted movie series being in pre-production and casting and all of this, that they pay attention to what Indiana Jones did right, and they pay attention to what The Mummy did right, and they pay attention to what their own intellectual property has done right. Because these are some of my favorite types of movies, these these action-adventure movies where there's a dose of the supernatural mixed in. You know, Romancing the Stone, Alan Quarterman in the Lost City of Gold, um, even the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Indiana Jones, The Mummy, 
you know, these are all some of the, the most fondly remembered movies of years gone by for me. I love this genre when it's done well. Um, I think the first Mummy in 1999, I think they did it better than most, probably better than, than anyone since Indiana Jones. Uh, the second one, it, it obviously left a sour taste in my mouth. I thought they redeemed themselves moderately with the third one. Um but as a franchise, it's probably best that this one this one stays dead. Um, Brendan Fraser is not going to be an action star again, and his his career may be over, as for all I know, because he's fallen off the map and his acting career has fallen off a cliff, much like this franchise did. Um, but I hope that going forward, whether it's Uncharted or someone else, that that we see a, a revival of the action adventure genre with with some supernatural stuff thrown in. Because I really think there's always going to be a place for it in Hollywood. There always has been to this point, and I think there always can be. Um, it just needs to be handled handled properly. No, sir, the action-adventure movies have now all been taken over by comic books. Well, that's fun, because there's a lot of, lot of action-adventure stuff in comic books that's not necessarily superhero stuff that, that could be very well done. I would, I would pay... Upwards of twelve dollars a ticket to go watch an Iron Fist movie, where where Danny Rand <laughs> digs through the mountains of Kunlun to learn how to become the Iron Fist, and we get martial arts and hidden hidden secret societies and mysticism and dragons and punching things and eclectic billionaires and you know I, just because it's a superhero movie doesn't mean doesn't mean it has to be the Avengers. I, I would be all for. Uh, something like Iron Fist or uh, a well-told Daredevil story, um, giving us the opportunity to see a, a true action-adventure movie uh, along the, along the same lines that we've seen from from Indiana Jones and the Mummy. So, um, I was holding my I was hanging on to my son, uh, my six-month-old son Jonas, and uh, after I got home tonight, I got home kind of late. And um, I was like, can you just hang on to him so I can get him ready for his you know, bath and everything? And then go lay down because you sound like shit. So, okay. So I'm kind of holding him there. I've got him by his hands. And I got really close to his face. You know, he likes to grab me by the beard and everything and, and claw at my face because he's a six-month-old. And I kind of got to him and I said, I got no strings to hold me down. <laughs> I just kept doing that. Yeah, and I would even do like the face tilt, like Ultron. You go, there are no strings on me, and he just look at me and laugh his ass off. My wife got, got slightly irritated <laughs> because between that and me yelling out my girl's pussy, which is from Boardwalk Empire, and I'm not going to explain it, uh, she's about tired of me <laughs> and uh, my uh, my shenanigans. So, but yeah, that's uh why I played it at the beginning. I'm I'm very much stuck on the got no strings thing. Speaking of uh, comic book movies, but that's a whole other whole other podcast. So, uh, Gavin, it was a pleasure. I'm sorry we had to do kind of an abbreviated show tonight. I would have liked to have talked more, but if this goes on any further, I'm not going to have a voice tomorrow. So that with that being said, uh, go ahead and plug away at the things that you do that you want people to know about. Uh, we just did a WrestleCast last night where we talked about some of the greatest promos of all time. It's a little bit of a diversion for the WrestleCast, uh, but we should have a Hell in a Cell preview coming up sometime this weekend, hopefully. 
Uh, Jed also has a recap of Monday Night Raw up on the website. Monday Night Raw itself not particularly inspired, but Jed's recaps always are. We do have an interview coming up. It will be our fourth visit from the five-time NWA World Heavyweight Champion Scrap Iron Adam Pierce. And the reason he is going to stop by and chat with us fresh off of another week as a guest trainer at the WWE Performance Center is to discuss his upcoming appearance Saturday, November 1st, 7 p.m. at Phil Klein Family YMCA in Huntington, West Virginia for Jewel City Championship Wrestling. Uh, Jewel City Championship Wrestling's second card, round two, Fight Against Hunger, will be a benefit for the Facing Hunger Food Bank, a food bank located in Huntington, West Virginia, which serves 17 counties in the West Virginia, Ohio, and Kentucky tri-state area that to date in 2014 has provided over 3.7 million meals for people desperately in need of them. Uh, you can go online to www.jewelcitywrestling.com to purchase tickets. $20 for front row, $15 for everything else with a $5 rebate when you bring a jar of peanut butter or a donation of canned goods to the event with you. On the show, you will see Scrap Iron, Adam Pierce, the Doomsday Jesus, the Monster A2, uh, Chance Prophet, Chris Stark, Generation Dead, Onyx, Sherman Tank, Jock Sampson, Oleg the Usurper, Zach Vincent, Ethan Wright, Alex Matthews, Broderick Shaw, Lance Storm trainee, Brian Bowers, former United States Marine, Levi Connors. Ladies and gentlemen, it's going to be a stacked card. Uh, we look forward to seeing anyone and everyone that's within driving distance of Huntington, West Virginia, coming out and seeing us for that. Help support a good cause, trying to get the, the shelves stocked at the Facing Hunger Food Bank going into the holiday season. For anything and everything else related to the Casual Heroes, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the Casual Heroes. Send us a line. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't like. You can hear us on iTunes. You can hear us on Stitcher or you can get all of our podcasts streaming directly from the website at www.thecasualheroes.com. That's about it for my plugs. Take it away, Mr. Radlich. All right, uh, the Metal Hammer of Doom last week, uh, we reviewed uh, New Cannibal Corpse because it's Halloween season and, you know, what way to celebrate Halloween with death metal. Um, a week from tonight, we'll be doing the new Orange Goblin because, you know, stoner metal. Um Two weeks after that, we've had a change because I didn't realize the new Slipknot album was coming out when it was. So <clears throat> two weeks after Orange Goblin, look for a review of the new Slipknot. Uh, and Primus will get pushed off until next year. But that's okay. Um, we, we, we can wait for Primus and the, uh, the Fungi Ensemble. In any case, uh, over here on the long road to ruin, uh, next week we'll have Mr. Christopher Evans, unless he's in a trazodone coma, uh, we will be looking at the Lethal Weapon franchise. That'll be fun. Um, hopefully I'll have a voice and we can actually do a full show. Um, after that, it's going to get a little dicey. I have scheduled uh, Jason Offit, who was on at the er- beginning of the year, uh, to do the Aliens and Predator movies. Um, still have him scheduled to do Star Trek 2, 3, and 4, or as I'm calling it, the Spock trilogy. Uh that show happens, it will probably be happening at a much later time than the show usually airs live. Now, for those of you that don't listen live and only listen to the archive, this doesn't really matter. But um, starting mid-November in theory, uh, 
the Thursday night, any show that I'm on is going to have to be taped um, later than 11 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm not at liberty to discuss why. Just know that my schedule might be changing in the near future, and that's going to cause me to push back some podcasting uh, that I do. So we are still scheduled to do Lethal Weapon, still theoretically scheduled to do Star Trek. Uh, December for Christmas, we got Gremlins with Jesse Starcher, and of course, the last show of the year, Lord of the Rings, right around the time of The Hobbit, Battle of Five Armies, uh, with my wife. Again, that is subject to change, given my uh, change in schedule. I will let you know as it happens. This Saturday is Aldo versus Mendez 2, until one of them gets injured, and it becomes Schmageggy versus a, uh, a, you know, a giant douche. In any case, whatever it ends up being, uh, we will do alternative commentary. You'll be able to find our live broadcast of the alternative com- commentary on YouTube and in the live report on 401media.com brought to you by Robert Winfrey. We will have, hopefully, Chris Evans, Patrick Mullen, and Sam McCarty of the Zonka Broadcasting Network. Uh, with that, I uh, appreciate all of you who tuned in live and for those listening in the archive. Uh, again, apologize for my voice tonight. Uh, we will resume uh, normal voice activities and levels of enthusiasm uh, next week once my post-nasal drip clears up. Until then, for Gavin Napier of the Casual Heroes, be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>